Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with James Vincent about his book, Beyond Measure. It's about our age-old propensity as humans to measure things, from notches on a 40,000-year-old wolf bone, to the measurement of fields in medieval times, to how much a kilogram weighs today. Then, Dr. Rob Ross from Surface Oncology tells us why the first generation of immuno-oncology drugs only worked on 15% of cancer patients and how surface oncology is tackling the other 85%. Their phase two trials in lung cancer and liver cancer are recruiting now. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Bill Bryson about his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. While reading his book, it became clear to me that the history of how humans live their private lives is really the history of household technology. Well, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, the history of houses is really, as the point I make in the book, is the history of everything. I mean, you can look at it, domesticity from a biological standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a technological standpoint, and, and yet we never look at it really from any standpoints. I mean, you know, the history of private life is something that doesn't get taught in schools. It doesn't really feature on any, any radar anywhere. And that was the whole idea of the book was that, you know, I had spent the whole of my formative years in school, learning about the history of the world from the perspective of wars and diplomacy and big, kind of big global events, things happening on a big tapestry. But actually, when you stop and think about all of those things, where they ultimately end up, the achievements of, of history end up in our homes. And everybody has to be somewhere. (laughs) Everybody has a home. Everybody has a home. And homes are oddly recognizable. I mean, I don't go on into this very much in the book, but it is a strange thing. Wherever you go in the world, if if you're just dropped into an unfamiliar uh, environment, you can recognize the homes. You can distinguish homes very quickly, even though a lot of times homes, you know, are not terribly distinguishable in terms of architecture. There is something about an atmosphere of domesticity that we all know. And it's very, very hard to define what makes a house or what makes a residence because it can be so many different things. I mean, it can be all really essentially an infinite number of materials. It can be any kind of shape. It can be all kinds of things. And yet we know a home when we see it. Now, your jumping off point is your actual home in England. Tell us about it. Well, the whole idea, Moira, was that that in 2003, after living in New Hampshire for eight years, I, I moved back to England with my English wife and kids, and, and we ended up living in a former Church of England parsonage uh, in, in Norfolk, in East Anglia. And while I was sitting there, uh, soon after we arrived, I was kicking around ideas for books. I needed to come up with an idea for a new book. And I was actually sitting at the kitchen table and just idly fingering the salt and pepper shakers on the table. And, it, and I thought, why, why those two? Why do we always have salt and pepper at every table I've ever kitchen table I've ever sat at. You know, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. We had salt and pepper on the table. I live in England now. We had salt and pepper on the table. Why Why those two? Why not salt and cinnamon or pepper and cardamom or any other combination of things? And that was my kind of starting point was thinking that, you know, actually, I don't know anything about houses and how they're organized and, and really the histories behind these everyday objects that we are immersed in all the time. So, so the whole idea of the book became, I'll make a trip 
I'll travel around my own house, this old parsonage in England, and I'll just go from room to room, and I'll, I write a history of the earth from the perspective of each room. So the bathroom would be a history of hygiene, and kitchen the history of cooking, bedroom would be sex and death and sleeping, whatever happened in history in those rooms, and, and see where that takes us. And I had no idea what I, what I might be embarking upon. And how old is the parsonage? It was, it was built in 1851, so it's about 160 years. And you had blueprints from the original parsonage. You know, I was lucky that it was a Church of England property because that meant we had a pretty good record of both the original plans had been saved because the Church of England held on to all of these things because um, otherwise they might have been lost at some point in, in, in the last century and a half. And also we had a, a, a complete record of, of occupants from, you know, we knew the, the names of all of, through the Church of England, knew the names of all the, the rectors who had lived in this house from, from 1851 up until the 1970s when it was sold off. Church of England found it very hard to keep these grand old parsonages. It was, they're, they're quite expensive houses for, for um, you know, country parsons. And so they beginning in, well, the early 20th century, they began to sell them off little by little. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Bill Bryson about his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. With the COVID-19 pandemic and global sheltering in place, the technologies in our home are distinctly unprecedented. Bill Bryson's latest book is The Body, A Guide for Occupants. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we found out that we humans have been measuring things for at least 40,000 years and we haven't stopped. James Vincent talks about his book, Beyond Measure, the hidden history of measurement from qubits to quantum constants. Then in biotech, Dr. Rob Ross, the CEO of Surface Oncology, tells us about their strategy to improve on the first generation of immuno-oncology drugs. Their phase two trials in lung cancer and liver cancer are underway and recruiting. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, James Vincent. James, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me, Moira. Pleasure to be here. Now, we use measurement all the time. We measure weights, we measure distance and time, we measure rainfall, we count days, months, years, and even money, which is related again to all of that. Mm. It's easy to forget that this is a constant activity, and at this scale, certainly, unique to humans. Mm. Yes, I, I think um, measurement is one of those 
I mean, it's why I wrote the book. It's one of those underobserved but ubiquitous technologies within human civilization. And I, I, I sort of go between what I think of it as. Sometimes I call it a technology. Sometimes it's a discipline. But I think it's, it's fascinating because it involves so many aspects of uh, sort of human development. It's a, it's a cognitive practice in many ways. It's something that we have to process when we look at the world. But it's also a structural practice. It's something that we need to build up and disseminate through organizations and institutions. But measurement is all around us. And that's exactly what the book is about. Which reminds me of the very first point you make, and that is measuring brings us closer to what is real in our lives, to, to our own reality, mm. uh, which is part of the cognition, as, yeah. as you say. Yeah, it's really a tool. Um, it's a mirror. Right. What we choose to measure in life is a reflection of what we value. Um, and this is sort of one of the challenges of measurement is that obviously it can't capture everything that we value within life. And this is one of the big themes within the book, the idea that although what is measurable matters in many ways, as, as you know, as the saying goes, there's a lot that cannot be quantified. But I think by looking at measurements and what we choose to measure and how we choose to measure it, we learn a lot about ourselves. You know, you bring up the example of money. And, you know, one of the things I talk about towards the end of the book is um, GDP as a measure, for example. You know, and, and this is something that we are told reflects the well-being, the happiness of our economies and the countries we live in. It's something that politicians fret about, economists worry about, and yet it is something sort of intangible, something abstract from our lives. And there's a lot of criticism about GDP saying that it doesn't actually measure what we should really care about, which is happiness within a country. Um, so this is why it's important to look at every measure that we attach value to, because often it fails to capture what exactly we actually want. Now, while we in the U.S. are familiar with weighing food and even ourselves in terms of pounds, mm. we know about the European tradition of weighing in kilograms. And within a few hundred words of the book, you shocked me <laughs> by describing how the standard for how much a kilogram weighs was and is determined by well was determined um, by a physical standard yes this is actually no longer the case um, this was what got me into the book in the first place um, I was sent on a reporting trip back in 2018 to cover the redefinition of the kilogram and you know at the time I had no idea that the kilogram could be redefined that there was this group of international scientists and diplomats dedicated to maintaining and promulgating its value across all the metric nations but for centuries, the kilogram and other standards of the metric system, and indeed standards uh, in use in the US, like, you know, obviously the, the gallon, the pound, the foot, and so on, they were defined using physical artifacts. So there was such a thing as the kilogram and the meter. And these were metal objects that were kept in vaults in Paris uh, for the metric system. And that every meter and every kilogram in the world was a copy of that one physical artifact. And now this, this sounds like a quite a simple system, uh, but obviously there's a problem with this, and that is that physical artifacts decay. They wear, they change, nothing material is permanent in life. And so over the centuries, all these various units of the metric system and other systems of measurement have moved from being based on physical artifacts to being based on these abstract uh, constants within the universe. So for example, you know, uh, the meter is no longer defined using a physical meter bar, but it's defined by the distance traveled by the speed of light in a certain gas over a certain period of time. 
And then you go, okay, so where does that measurement of time come from? And then you go, okay, well, actually, the second obviously used to be defined as one eighty sixth four hundredth of uh, a day of the you know the rotation of the planet. That's how many seconds are in a day. But that is something that's variable as well because the planet's rotation it speeds up and it slows down, which means that the second would change in length. So they define that using the spin of atoms. They count the sort of energy phase shifts, the rotations, as it were, of a particular atom, cesium one three three, and that is how the seconds defined. And I, I just thought this was baffling, boggling, <laughs> you know, incredible <laughs> that not only did these use these things used to exist as physical artifacts, but that they no longer exist. That we are, you know, measurements. These very ordinary things in all our lives are actually now based on the speed of light and the spin of atoms. Um, and I thought this was just such a fantastic uh, sort of scientific quest that we were looking for ever more stable uh, places to rest in the universe, as it were, looking for an oasis of calm in this chaotic world we live in. Um, and that's where measurement is so important uh, and why the history of it is so, so fascinating. Well, this certainly took you back through history as well as forward to present day and the future. Uh, but let's go back to the earliest indicators that humans were measuring yeah. and recording those measures. Uh, you talk about the wolf bone 33,000 years ago. Yes, yeah. So the sort of the early, earliest history of measurement is necessarily a little bit speculative because it's prehistory. It is before there were, you know, any before there was writing, before there was a written language that could record events. But we have these archaeological artefacts, uh, which include the wolf bone, uh, which was found in, I believe, Monday um, Czech Republic, and is um, just a bone, an animal bone, carved with these series of notches. Now, okay, we don't know exactly what these notches were recording, but the way they are ordered on the bone suggests they were there for more than pattern or decoration. Um, there is this... Um, consistent sort of cognitive limit within humans uh, and you see it in counting systems all over the world that when you want to count something you obviously you start doing little notches for it that's usually the most basic way to do it lines or dots but you count one two three four and usually when you get to five sometimes four but more often five you do something else uh you do like a hook or a slash or something like this and it's because um Human's ability to count at a glance, um, which is a skill known as subitizing, uh, which is where you just look at something and you go, oh, there's two roses, there's three balls, there's four dogs, whatever it is, that usually ends at about three or four. So five is the point at which humans stop being able to just sort of know how many things there are and they have to start consciously counting. So the interesting thing about these early notched bones is that they tend to be divided up into these sort of um, these sections of five, basically. And that's what suggests to us that they were physical counting tools. Um, and, you know, there's some debate to be had, I guess, about whether counting is the same as measurement. You know, do you need a unit of quantity for something to be a measurement? But I think if we're looking at the long, deep history, those two skills, counting and measurement, are so connected that it's okay to go back to the wolf bones. And, and there was actually just in the news today, a new story on this. And you'd think, oh, I've written a history of measurement. That's probably not going to change for a while. But no, as it turns out, there's always new research coming up. And people have been deciphering Ice Age cave paintings. These are about 10,000 years old. 
and they were paintings of uh, animals, and they often accompanied by these series of dots, and people were trying to work out what the dots is. And this new theory, which has been given some credence by archaeologists, is that they're actually um, related to the mating seasons of the animals. And so it was Hunter's way of tracking when there would be, you know, new babies coming in, when these <laughs> the offspring might be vulnerable, essentially. So, you know, counting is something that we use to get a grip on nature with. You know, some of the earliest counting systems alongside these notched bones are to do with uh, the, the calendar and with time. I mentioned earlier that the second is obviously defined as a fraction of the solar day. But if you think about what are the natural units of life of the universe, the most basic ones are to do with time. They're to do with the year, uh, the, the winter and the summer equinoxes. Uh, they're to do with the seasons, the days, and of course, to do with the months as well. So I, I think of sort of um, measurement as something that we impose on the world, but it's also something we learn from the world as well. It's something we're taught by the natural cycles of the of the universe. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist James Vinson, a senior reporter for The Verge, Vox Media's text news website. His book is Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constance. And yes, yes, we're measuring our bodies. What's a qubit? C-U-B-I-T. What's a qubit? What is a qubit? Uh, so a qubit is an, a, a very early and very long-lived um, unit of measurement. Uh, the English word for it comes from the Latin cubitum, uh, which is, I believe, Latin for elbow. But a qubit is uh, measured from the bottom of the elbow to the tip of the fingertips. And it is one that was very common within the sort of uh, Northern Africa and Middle East. It, so obviously, um, it's something we associate now with the Egyptians, but it's also very familiar um, because it comes through the Bible, the Pentateuch, all these sort of old Abrahamic religious texts. You know, they talk about Noah's Ark and the Ark of the um, Tabernacle being measured out in cubits. Um, but this is just one of one example of um, early units of measurement that had arrived from the body. Uh, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about how measurement is essentially a is a quest for stability. It's looking for regularity within the universe by which we can sort of compare portions of it. And of course, if you're looking for something regular and consistent, the human body is pretty good. You know, it's, it's not obviously, you get short people, you get tall people, you get all sizes and shapes, but a foot, is a pretty good measure. People's feet are roughly the same size. A fathom, which is the length of your outstretched arms or a span, that's roughly consistent. And lots of, well, pretty much every ancient civilization, every ancient culture that we know of uses the body as this index of measurement and they derive all sorts of units from it. And some of these are very sort of strange and whimsical to us now. One of my, one of my favorites is a, is a really old forgotten unit that was from uh, Middle English uh, and is called the Yepsen. Now, the Yepsen is the amount of uh, stuff quantity that you can hold within a pair of cupped hands, which I think is a rather beautiful thing. You know, if you're standing in the buffet in the morning for breakfast, yeah, I'll have a Yepsen of uh, the cereal, please. <laughs> Just dole that out right there. Um, but there's all there's all these sorts of unusual. And another another favorite of mine was um, uh, a unit, uh, which was the ear hole. Which was a very small <laughs> unit of quantity, uh, a unit of volume, which was used um, for measuring medicine. 
because if you think it's a very sort of tiny amount, but that you might need to measure out a small a small thing with. Um, but yes, bodies are these sorts of natural ruling sticks. And you know, obviously in the US where you still have um, very popular your customary measures, your feet. You know, that is one of the arguments for retaining these units is that they are fitted to the body in some way. Well, I have to tell you, I haven't thought about this in years, in years. Mm. But as a young girl, my grandmother, who grew up on a farm in Ireland, a small farm in Ireland, um, she taught me how to smell a yard. And what you do is you take one part of the the very end of the material, put it to your nose, then you put your hand along the rest of it and pull it tight as your (laughs) other hand, as far as you can, back across your body. And then you lay it down, and sure enough, it's a yard. It's within an eighth of an inch. It's good enough. So you could smell a yard. So thank you for that, James. I didn't see that coming till I read your book. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Moira. I've never heard of that definition before, but that's fantastic. I'm going to remember that one. Yes. Well, great. Well, you did give us the collop, the C-O-L-L-O-P, which yeah. would be the amount of land needed to graze a cow. Mm, so mm. that's a little more variable. It is, it is. So this is something that we see in the sort of the deep history of measurement. You know, I've talked about the need for consistency, uh, consistency in units and their size and their application. But also a lot of early measurements were variable, as you say, they were flexible, particularly the ones to do with measuring land. And I think this makes sense when you think about what is it when you're trying to measure land? If you live in an agricultural society where the wealth comes from the land primarily, you know, your your um, daily grain, your daily bread literally comes from the land, you need to know information about how valuable that land is. The collop is a fantastic example of this. This is an old Irish unit. Um, and as you say, it measures the amount of land needed to graze a single cow. So if you think about that, that means a collop is going to vary in size. A, a collop measured on the side of a barren, rocky hillside, it's going to need to be very large in order to provide enough food for a single cow. But a collop in a small, fertile pasture, grassland somewhere, that's going to be a little bit more dense. The utility of these units is that they better describe what the people were trying to achieve with them. So if you say, well, I'm going to sell you 10 collops of land, you know where you are because you know that whether that is going to be a very large area or a very small area, it is going to be able to meet your needs, which is grazing your livestock. If you measure that same uh, area out using a sort of unbending measure, whether that's a meter or a foot, then you could be getting a very different parcel of land. So this is a trend that we see throughout medieval Europe in particular to do with measuring land and measuring other things related to agriculture. Um, And it's very interesting because you can see how these units sort of fade out as the metric system comes in. And the metric system was the first really successful system of measurement. And the big thing about it is that it was based on these Uh, scientific ideals. Um, So instead of having units that varied in size, you would have very, very consistent ones that were better for doing scientific work and better for policy administration as well. Now, we will stop with our tour of Ireland in the late 1880s. (laughs) (laughs) Although... Although Bill the One-Eyed Horse does deserve a mention here. He's he's part of the whole family history. Um, But now I want to talk about children. Children anywhere Mm. and how they you know before they become adults or any they have these senses of measurement and and you write about a a 1960s study uh, of children let's go there 
So um, this was uh, a really interesting, a really interesting part of the research that I hadn't really expected to get into. You know, I, I'm one of those people who, if I'm looking into a subject, I always go, okay, what's the, where does it really come from? How far back can I go? And obviously, we went back to the sort of archaeological roots, but then that got me looking into the innate cognitive faculty of measurement, whether it is something innate. So there was this this study done with different ages of children, I think from, you know, about three upwards to 12 or something like this. And they were tasked with, they were shown this tower of blocks, and then there was a wall dividing it from a pile of blocks, and they had to replicate the tower to the same height as it was on the other side. So they couldn't look at both of the towers at the same time, but they could go back and forth between this dividing wall and have a look. And they were given all these tools to do it. And they were said, here's the blocks, here's some paper, some sticks and whatever, and you got to replicate these. So with the youngest children, they tended to just sort of measure the tower against their own body. They'd go up to it and go, okay, it comes up to my chest. I'll go around here. I'll build it up to my chest. When the children got older, they started to use measuring tools, which were left out for them, but they weren't directed to. So they started to measure it out using string and bits of paper. And what this shows is that measurement is not necessarily something we are born knowing how to do. It's like this thing I was saying earlier about subitizing, about being able to count at a glance. There are limits to our ability to measure before they are taught to us. And with the older children, what these studies found is that measurement is a skill that needs to be practiced. Um, it is obviously something that is fantastically useful to civilization, but we don't just pick it up out of nowhere. It needs to be passed on to us. And that's because, as I say, measurement is not only something we take from the world, but it's something we impose on it as well. So measurement is a learned skill. Something that ties together every civilization going as far back as we can, where we have recorded history, all the way up to what we're trying to do today with the, the web telescope, etc., is the measurement of the night sky. Mm. Early on, it was very, very close to religion or religious you know, affiliations or explanations of the world and what's going on up through today. Mm. How do we look at this? Is it, it's an, I guess it's a natural human inclination. Yeah, well, it's, you know, as I said earlier, there's um, natural cycles within uh, the universe around us that sort of give us these patterns to look at. And astronomy is one of these, you know, people call it the earliest uh, scientific discipline, not necessarily because... Uh, everything about it was scientific. Obviously, there was a lot of astrology as well as astronomy. So people were looking in the sky for changes that would do that would, would indicate some sort of change on Earth below. But because it was a practice that required observation and careful measurement. So you would get in these early civilizations, um, early astronomers who would record the movement of the stars at different times of the year. And then they would take this pattern that they had and they would look for changes. And every time they saw a change, that would mean something that would mean a portent, whether that was about, you know, a flood, a famine, a war, a, a new child, a new royal child, whatever it might be. So astrology uh, and astronomy rather, are these great teachers of measurement. Um, and it's something that we actually see throughout the history of measurement going right up into, you know, the modern age, the early modern period, that a lot of uh, innovations in metrology in the science of measurement have come through astronomy, uh, just because it's something that, you know, it's always an inspiration to us whenever we look out at the night sky. Now, food has to be weighed. And uh, 
when we go into a grocery store or supermarket, we always look on the outside how much this is weigh or we have a sense, but we know it's written there. We have confidence. Uh, and here in the U.S., we have a government agency, NIST, mm. the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So what about the precise measurement of peanut butter? <laughs> so NIST is, as you say, a government agency uh, tasked with maintaining metrological standards within the U.S. But obviously, because the U.S. is such a, um, you know, a dominant economic force in the world, a lot of what it uses to, for standardization is um, exported along with its goods and along with its services to other parts of the world. I'm speaking with James Vincent about his book, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and other podcast outlets. Biotech-related interviews are also individually podcast. Click through on technation.com or directly at biotechnation.com. Or again, subscribe separately through your favorite podcaster. In the second half of our show, one next-generation approach to immuno-oncology drugs what surface oncology is doing, and what it's like to be in their phase two trials for lung cancer and liver cancer. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with James Vincent, the author of Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants. Now, food has to be weighed. And here in the U.S., we have a government agency, NIST, mm. the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So what about the precise measurement of peanut butter? <laughs> yeah, so this was uh, a fantastic uh, little, um, I don't know, story I had not been expecting to come across. Um, so NIST is, as you say, a government agency uh, tasked with maintaining metrological standards within the US. Now, Lots of countries have similar agencies. Um, in the UK, we have the National Physics Laboratory. It's called the NPL. But obviously, because the US is such a, um, you know, a dominant economic force in the world, a lot of what it uses to, for standardization is um, exported along with its goods and along with its services to other parts of the world. 
So one of the things NIST does is it standardizes food in, this var in these various ways. It produces um, a catalog of standardized materials, including food, that it then sells to manufacturers in order to verify their measurements they're doing. So if you go into a grocery store and you buy some peanut butter, it will tell you it has X amount of fats, X amount of salts, these sorts of acids, those sorts of acids. And the, and the idea is, how do you know? Well, the manufacturer does tests where it looks for these different quantities within that food. But then you go, okay, so how do they know? Where do their measurements come from? And the answer is they come from NIST. And what NIST does is, is it creates all these food samples and it measures them to the nth degree. You know, it really take, it really goes to town on these things. It sort of, um, uh, it, it melts them, evaporates them, saponifies them, uh, you know, puts them through all these sorts of crazy machines in order to get this measurement of exactly what is inside this down to the, you know, the at atomic detail we're talking. Um, and then it sells these samples to uh, other manufacturers, which they use to validate their machinery because they think, OK, how do we know our machinery is measuring things correctly? Well, we know that NIST's sample has X amount of this and Y amount of that. So if we put it through and it gives us the right results, bingo, we know that our machinery works correctly. Um, now, NIST does this for all sorts of industries and it provides um, what uh, what one of NIST's um, uh, organizers, one of their managers told me, he described it as sameness in a bottle. Is that's what you're looking for? You're looking for something to be consistent time and time again. So another thing they produce, just to give an example, is the standardized cigarette. So NIST sells what are possibly the most expensive cigarettes in the US. And I'm talking <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a carton. Now, this is not necessarily because the cigarettes are special. They're not particularly good tobacco. They're not, you know, they're not the finest filters known to man, nothing like that. But they are consistent. They are the same cigarette over and over and over and over again. You know, the same uh, mix of materials, the same spacing within the tube. The reason for this is that um, if you're in the US and many other countries, you need to meet certain standards for flammability if you're selling fabrics. So you're selling a curtain, you're selling a sofa, a couch, whatever it is. Um, so you need to test how flammable that material is. One of the big tests they do is the cigarette burn test. So if you fall asleep with a cigarette in your hand, is that gonna set your duvet on fire? If you're having a smoke in bed at night or whatever it might be. If you tested that using different cigarettes, then like any scientific um, experiment, that would be, uh, you know, it would be biased based on the variable cigarettes you were using. So NIST sells its own special cigarettes that everyone can then use and they can be sure that they are doing the same test over and over. Now, cigarettes, peanut butter, these are two examples, but NIST sells thousands of these things. It has this catalog, um, uh, SRMs they're called, and it has this fantastic warehouse full of all these crazy and exotic materials that are used for standardized testing. And again, it's just, it's just one of these systems that is sort of humming along in the back of our culture, in the back of the economy, but is incredibly important. You know, NIST's standards are what keep pollutants out of rivers. They're what keep um, baby food safe. They're what keep, uh, you know, your couches from burning in an instant when you, if you drop something flammable on them. These standards are really important in keeping and making the world around us. Well, one final question. Do you think it will ever be possible to, for all of us to agree to use a single measure, say 
pounds versus kilograms versus versus James Vincentograms uh, or miles and kilometers and moirometers. What is it possible that we could actually put all that? Into, could we all agree? Do you think that's possible? Well, I mean, Moira, you tell me. Your country, your country is the last big holdout. <laughs> you know this. It's Americans who are keeping us away from the metric system. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have. I, I was so hoping you would change your mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I, honestly, I grew up in the UK where we have a sort of hybrid system where metric is used deeply within industries, and you know, it's it's used in science work and it's used in schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but a lot of discussion is still done in uh, old imperial measures. Uh, so, you know, we talk about our height in feet and inches, babies when they are born, their weight is given to their mother in pounds and ounces. Um, and, you know, so we have we have both systems. In America, it's slightly more uh, entrenched. Uh, America is famously one of three countries to be officially non-metric, uh, along with Myanmar and Liberia. Um, so it's obviously America is pulling its weight in that trio a little bit more than the others in terms of its economic clout. Um, but I, I, I think the world will go fully metric eventually. You know, America has tried to go metric uh, multiple times, going right back to George Washington. Washington thought that um, standardizing units of measure was one of the highest priorities of the country, <laughs> you know, when, when he set the whole thing up. And yet it's never got done. It's, people have never got round to it for various, various reasons. Um, I think metric system is not necessarily better, uh, but I, well, I think it's better in some regards, definitely. I think decimal, uh, I think, um, decimal systems are, are, are better, certainly. Um, but I think what is better is having the world on the same system. Because having, you know, if you go back a couple of hundred years or 300 years or so, basically, every country has its own system of measurement. Imagine how, how stultifying that is for trade or for exchanging scientific research, for example. Um, you know, if you want to talk to someone and you need to convert every time you do it, it's it's a hassle. And we know it's a hassle because we all speak different languages in different countries or a lot of different languages anyway. Um, and that is the sort of friction that having different systems of measurement also introduces. Now, the thing when it comes to America is that America is secretly metric. Now I know ah, I know ah, you know you don't shock. you <laughs> I know you don't use the meter and the kilogram in everyday conversation but you know I talked earlier about these standards these measurement standards that are used to define and and, and uh, replicate and share units well America hasn't maintained its own physical standards since 1893 since 1893 the the american foot the gallon the ounce everything has been based on metric units and those metric units are maintained by an international body uh, based in paris in france and a lot of american industries are metric you know everything from automakers to the military you know the military talks about oh we're going to a target five clicks out what is a click it's a kilometer and yet they had to, you know, they had to introduce a new word so people didn't think it was miles. Um, but America is secretly metric. And I think as the generations go on, more Americans will become accustomed to metric units and they will become more comfortable using them and the world will be better for it. Well, James, I have to tell you, my grandmother didn't teach me to smell a meter. 
I don't, I, I don't know how we'll get around that, <laughs> but I'm going to leave that there with Bill the One-Eyed Horse. It is a bit. It is a bit tricky. <laughs> it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky. James, such a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I definitely will. Thanks so much for having me, Maura. My guest today is James Vincent. His book is Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In preparation for our next interview with Dr. Rob Ross, the CEO of Surface Oncology, I thought it would be helpful to distinguish between two terms, immunotherapy and immuno-oncology, because they are sometimes used interchangeably. And so we have two biotech-speak words of the week, immunotherapy and immuno-oncology. In truth, one exists within the other, and like all words, they may start with one meaning and over time develop different meanings. Immunotherapy by itself refers to any medical treatment which enables the immune system to fight disease. You may think you've never received immunotherapy, much less had a need for it, but many of us have received a COVID vaccine, whether the initial treatments or a booster. The COVID vaccine was designed to increase the capabilities of your immune system to fight the COVID virus should it somehow enter your system. Immuno-oncology drugs are also immunotherapies, specifically those immunotherapies which are intended to boost the immune system to fight a person's cancer. So what could be difficult about that? Well, that's where the evolution of terms and the cutting edge of science seeps in. The very first immunotherapies were developed solely to fight cancer. And so immunotherapy and immuno-oncology were one and the same. But now immunotherapies are being researched and developed, hoping to treat diabetes, genetic disorders, inflammatory diseases, cardiovascular conditions, and even for regenerative medicine. So the term immunotherapy to solely describe a cancer treatment is no longer useful. And yet we're human, and it's hard to change how we speak and the words that we use. Thus, in this next biotech interview, and from here forward, when we're talking about an immunotherapy to get your immune system to fight cancer, we will call it immuno-oncology, as oncology is that branch of medicine which specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. Remember that when you hear people speaking, or you're reading an article, or listening to a podcast. If they just say or write immunotherapy, then ask yourself, do I know what kind? In any event, you know it has something to do with your immune system. And now, our biotech interview. The initial hope for immuno-oncology drugs was somewhat dimmed, when they proved to be effective for only 15% of cancer patients. Today, we'll talk about one company's expansive approach to improve on that response rate. Dr. Rob Ross is the CEO of Surface Oncology. He'll explain their approach, as well as what it's like for a participant in their phase two trials for lung cancer and liver cancer currently in recruitment. And now, Dr. Ross. 
Well, Rob, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today I want to focus on next-generation immuno-oncology treatments. But I'd like to start first with what our bodies naturally do, then what the first generation of these immuno-oncology treatments are doing, and then about this next generation that that, uh, service oncology is working on. So to begin, our bodies make potentially cancerous cells all the time, and our immune systems see them and remove them, or rather they're supposed to, right? That, that's exactly right. Most people don't realize that their immune system not only fights bacteria and virus, but it also looks around and identifies damaged cells or potentially cancerous cells, attacks them, and gets rid of them. And it does that all the time. Now, how does that relate to cancer? Well, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, sometimes, for some reason, the immune system sees a cancerous cell, but doesn't remove it, or potentially just doesn't see it. And as that happens, that cancerous cell can grow and divide and become a bigger cancer and even spread as a cancer. And if that's invisible to the immune system, then the immune system can't destroy it. um, And then that cancer can cause us problems. Now, a few years back, a few years before the uh, COVID pandemic, remember them? I remember, I remember those times. Uh, th- there was real excitement about the new immuno-oncology treatments. How did those treatments work? Yeah, so remember, traditionally in, in oncology, in cancer, we use poisons to treat cancer. So we give molecules that are poisonous, and the idea is that those molecules will kill cancer cells better than they kill normal cells. Of course, many of those poisons have a lot of side effects. The hope behind immuno-oncology was that if we can get the immune system to identify those cancer cells that it had been missing, that the immune system itself can kill those cancer cells, and the side effects will be much less because we're not giving poisons. People have been working on this for decades and decades, um, but eventually, with the rise of what are called anti-PD-1 drugs and anti-CTLA-4 drugs. These are both targets that we can successfully use to allow the immune system to identify and fight cancers without using poisons, without using chemotherapy. Now, there's a couple of things in here that I, I think are important. You're not equipping the immune system to do anything more than it normally does, like we do with a COVID vaccine, right? Right. So that I think that's a really good point. So we're not supercharging the immune system. We're not giving it any special powers that it doesn't already have. We're just showing the immune system where there is a cancer cell that the immune system may not have noticed because that cancer cell had built up a lot of what we could call invisibility, had protected itself from the immune system so the immune system couldn't see it. And by by targeting that invisibility, by targeting that, uh, uh, those um, pathways the cell was using to avoid detection, we can make the immune system detect the cancer again. Now, you said the word target. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so cells use, cancer cells and normal cells, use a variety of different pathways to communicate with one another. Um, we can 
try to interfere with those pathways, and we call that targeting those pathways, as a way of getting the immune system to identify and fight the cancer. So the cancer cells have these pathways that they have turned on to avoid detection by the immune system. And by targeting these pathways, we can basically shine a light on the cancer so the immune system can see it again. So with all the excitement about the immunoecology treatments in that first generation of drugs which came and were wonderful, they still only worked on 15% of the patients. Why didn't they work on the other 85%? Yeah, so so it's a it's a really important question and the answer is that the 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 pathways that the cancer cells use to avoid the immune system are complicated and often they use more than one. So if you can interfere with one but they still have another pathway that they have turned on to avoid the immune system, you still haven't fully shown a light on that cancer um for the immune system to detect. So now surface oncology is working on next generation immuno-oncology. What are you doing? Yeah, so surface oncology was founded on the idea that there are all these other pathways that the immune that the cancer cells use to avoid the immune system and that by going after these other pathways we can broaden the effect of immuno-oncology to help more patients. And so as a company We've been around since 2014. We've gone after six additional pathways to try to improve that 15% number, such that it's not 15% of patients who can benefit from immuno-oncology, but 20, 30, 40, or even higher as we can target these additional, these additional pathways. So now I see six development programs here, each with unprecedented targets um, in terms of what we already know about immuno-oncology drugs. And of the six, one has been outlicensed to GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, another to Novartis. But let's focus on your compound number 388. And I, I want to do that because they're both actively recruiting in phase two trials. One is in non-small cell lung cancer, the other is in liver cancer. So let's start with the non-small cell lung cancer. What is uh, number 388 doing there? Yeah, so we call it SRF388. SRF stands for surface, but I think it's a lot simpler just to call it 388. So we've been working on 388 here at Surface for six years now, um, and we're the only people in the clinic with a molecule like this. Um, this molecule um, uh, uh, interferes with a pathway called the IL-27 pathway. This is a protein that can prevent um, tumor cells from being identified by the immune system. And so 388 binds that protein to allow the immune system to identify the cancer. And in particular, we've seen that in lung cancer and in liver cancer, you see high levels of IL-27. So that's why we're going after those two tumor types with 388. Uh, so we were starting with a discussion around lung cancer. Um, with 388, we've seen evidence in people, in patients with lung cancer who have been treated with 388, have seen their cancers get smaller, and in some cases have seen what we call a confirmed partial response, which is where the cancer gets smaller and stays smaller for a while. So that was really exciting, and it got us to open up more trials in lung cancer. So right now, we're looking at 388 
by itself in lung cancer. And we're also looking at 388 in combination with one of those earlier immuno-oncology drugs we just talked about, a drug called Keytruda, also in lung cancer. Now, if you have not tried Keytruda before, are you the ones who are trying 388 without? Most, most patients with lung cancer will get Keytruda or a drug like Keytruda in, as their first treatment. So these trials are open for patients after their first treatment, so for their second or third treatment. So all of these patients will have already been treated by with either Keytruda or a drug like Keytruda, but we're allowing them in one of the arms to continue on the Keytruda and adding the 388. And then, of course, we have another arm where we're just treating patients with 388 alone, and that arm is the one that I told you has already enrolled some patients, and we've seen... Um, evidence of really nice activity. In both arms, if you've already been treated with Keytruda, you're still eligible. So you can get on the 388 alone arm or the 388 plus Keytruda arm. Now, if I was uh, a subject in either arm of this particular trial for for lung lung cancer, uh, what would it be like for me? How long would it go? What What's the experience? Yeah. So, so you would be um, you would be enrolled. Okay, at a doctor's office, and you could find the doctor who had the clinical trial based on going to our website and seeing where the clinical trial is open. If you go to clinical trials from our website, surfpsychology.com, you can see where the clinical trials are open if you go down to the clinical trials section of the website. Um, so you would call the doctor's office and see if they were open and enrolling patients. And if they were, you would travel to the doctor's office, you'd learn about the drug, and you'd learn about the clinical trial. Um, If you were getting, if you were eligible and decided to participate in the clinical trial, um, if you were on the 388 alone arm, you would come in once every four weeks for treatment with SRF388. It's given through an IV, it's given intravenously. Um, If you're on the 388 plus Keytruda arm, you would come in every three weeks and receive two drugs, both the 388 and the Keytruda every three weeks. And you'd be on it for as long as you were benefiting. As long as you're benefiting from the drug, you stay on the, stay on the trial. And how many more people are you looking for in that arm? So in total, between those two arms, we will be treating upwards of 80 patients. So it's about 40 in each arm. Now, on the 388 alone arm, we've already treated um, upwards of about 10 or so. So it's another 30 on that arm and then another 40 in the Keytruda plus 388 arm. And there are a number of places around the United States you are doing this. You can see that out on the site. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now let's get to the liver cancer uh, trial. Same drug. Yeah. Yep. Same drug um, in a little bit different setting here because, of course, it's liver cancer, not lung cancer. And now instead of giving it by itself or with one other drug, we're giving it with two other drugs. Um, Interestingly, this is for patients with liver cancer who've never been treated um, with uh, with drugs, uh, which what we call systemic therapy before. This is for patients who've really never been treated for liver cancer before. Um, and they would come in and now get all three drugs, 388 plus a drug called Avastin and a drug called Tencentric. Now Avastin and the other cancer drug, uh, 
that's the standard of care for liver cancer. That's exactly right. And, that's exactly and right. Keytruda is one of the standards of care for uh, the lung cancer. So that's the difference. That, yeah. That's exactly right. And um, in liver cancer, you would basically be receiving the standard of care, which just as you said, is a Vastin plus 10 centric, plus we're adding 388 with the hopes that we can improve the standard of care with the addition of 388. So while there's no placebo per se, do some of your group receive your drug 388 and some of the group, the two cancer drugs plus or plus nothing. That's the right. placebo is nothing. That's right. In the in the liver cancer trial, the first 30 patients on the trial, they all receive all three drugs. So every single one of those 30 patients will get all three drugs. If those data look good, if patients seem to be benefiting, we would then change the trial such that half the patients receive the standard of care of Aston plus 10 centric and the other half receive the standard of care plus 388. So there is that option in the trial, but it doesn't happen until after the, the first 30 patients are enrolled and treated. What this speaks to me of is, is really the, the essence of science. You, you have to do a few things and then take a look at it and then take a look. Then, okay, how do we adjust the next one? How do we adjust the next one? There's no way to project how many of these in succession you have to do. That's right. It's, it's, it's very iterative and you have to follow your best data. And in these clinical trials, we're getting our best data from the patients with cancer who um, uh, incredibly selflessly volunteer to participate, right? And we use their data to figure out who the best patients are to benefit from these drugs and how best to use them. And so we are very thankful for every single patient who enrolls in these or any clinical trial. Now, in the case of the lung cancer, they could be on it for as long as it's benefiting them. That's right. Is that also true in liver cancer? That's exactly right. They're on it for as long as it's benefiting them. That's right. We have patients, we have patients right now who've been on for a year or longer. Now, do the people who want to join the liver cancer trial, do they find out about it the same way that we just talked about in terms of the lung cancer? That's exactly right. You go to our website, surfpsychology.com, go to the clinical trials dropdown, and you'll see a section for the liver cancer trial and a section for the lung cancer trial, and you just click on those links. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. I, I would love it. This has been great. Thank you so much for your time. My guest today is Dr. Rob Ross, the CEO of Surface Oncology. More information about participating in the Phase two lung cancer or liver cancer trials wherever you live in the U.S. is available at surfaceoncology.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.